you would open your Bibles to Psalm 145. Psalm 145, and I will read the psalm in its entirety. And make sure you actually have it, either on your device or in your Bible that you brought or the one that's in the seat back in front of you. I do want you to see the flow of this psalm. Pay attention to how the psalmist constructs his praise. Psalm 145. Hear now the word of the Lord. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to one another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all who look to you, of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand to satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, and all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praises of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever. This is the word of the Lord. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, please be with us now as we examine your word. May we not only be equipped to examine it and to see what it has for us today, but may it transform us. Grant us now grace by your Holy Spirit to be the kind of people who would say the same thing as the psalmist in this psalm. May we rejoice in your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
In many ways, this message is a follow-up from the message that was preached last week over Jonah chapter 4. The main point, I think, of Jonah, and especially chapter 4, is God's grace and how it is that we as human beings interface or come up against, in some ways, God's grace and his gracious disposition. And it is Celebration Sunday, and the rationale, as I've already hinted at, is, is that We as the people of God should be a preview. The way we gather should uh, be prophetic in some sense of what is to come. And so combine those two ideas together and here you have this message. This idea of celebrating the glorious grace of God. In many ways, Jonah 4 ends on a cliffhanger and on a, a downward note because Jonah is still upset at the end. He doesn't like God's freedom to show grace however he wills. So the summons to us as his people is to be different than Jonah. I've I've mentioned before in other sermons, uh, I'd like to make a t-shirt brand that says something like, don't be like Cain, uh, don't be like Esau, and don't be like Jonah, uh, who's upset at God showing grace. We need to be different than that. We need to celebrate God's grace. So why Psalm 145? In fact, there are many candidates... um, And we will allude to many of those along the way. There are many passages in Scripture that draw us in, as it were, to celebrate and to enjoy and rejoice in God's gracious disposition. This psalm will function as a springboard and as a well to draw from in order to answer questions and issue a summons to us all. So... Know this, when I say the term grace, and when the Bible uses grace in certain places, and I would argue the majority of cases, it's kind of a summary or an umbrella term for many other attributes, if you will, of God, or or similar descriptions of His character. In Psalm 145, as we just read, we encounter gracious, but we also find merciful. We find kind multiple times. He is said to be slow to anger, and yet abounding in steadfast love. And then we have statements like verses 14 through 16 that don't have one neat word. They're more images of God's behavior. He upholds those who are falling, and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. It doesn't mention a particular attribute of God. You could maybe say His providence or His provision. But this is all motivated out of His grace. Grace is the umbrella term. I need you to know that as we go through this. We're not just celebrating a very nuanced, tiny slice of His attributes, one particular facet. This is, the Bible does use the grace of God in a more expansive way. And that's the sense I'm using it here. There is this big, awesome basket of attributes, or better, words and images that the Bible uses to describe this core idea of God's character. It says grace or graciousness. And there's a biblical precedent for doing that from Ephesians 1. We'll get to Ephesians 1 here in a little bit. But the, uh, Paul equates God's glory with the glory of His grace, or the glory of His grace, His glorious grace. So I'm not trying to flatten the biblical imagery 
uh, into one thing, but we need to understand the interconnectedness and the interdependency of these things when we're talking about God. And someone might ask, I don't know if you're asking this, but this is the way I think, why not love? Why not discuss the love of God as the unifying umbrella term over all of these things? Legitimate question. God is love. But understand this, God is loving in himself. Even if he never created the world, he would be the most actively loving being in existence. He'd be the only being in existence. But he would be loving within the community of the Trinity. Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Spirit proceeding from both and being the interconnectedness of love. So love doesn't need to manifest for it to be true. And understand this. God can't show grace to God. God can't be gracious to the Son. The Spirit is not gracious to the Father or the Son. And I could go through the whole list of all the different relationships. That doesn't happen. So that's why love may be a more basic and fundamental understanding of who God is. We're talking about God's grace, which requires to be shown to other beings. Because it's impossible for God to show grace to himself. So let's define God's grace. Why do we need to define such a thing? These massive theological terms are sometimes are often left undefined, and they can be vague in our minds. If someone were to ask you, just imagine, you're just walking down the streets of Coeur d'Alene, downtown Spokane maybe, or in these halls of this building, and they were to say, define for me the grace of God, what would you say? Maybe a good question to ask at the conclusion of this sermon to see if I accomplish my purpose in giving you a working definition. The simple option is to say something like this. God giving you what you don't deserve. If that's all you've got, that's okay. That's a good working definition. But usually that definition is given as, as a way to distinguish God's grace from his mercy which I'm not sure that that's all that helpful as a category. The more theological option is to say something like this, unmerited favor, that God places his affection, his favor, his his goodwill upon people that are undeserving. And that's right and true. Both are true, but there's a deeper question behind that. Why is God this way? Why is God the kind of God who doesn't give you what you deserve and gives you what you don't deserve? Why is God a type of God who places upon people unmerited favor? What does it mean that God is a gracious God? Why has God acted this way? A simple answer to that question is to say, well, he just is. It's, it's, a, it's just so. There's a problem with that, because that would imply that God is obligated to show grace, which kind of cuts at the heart of what grace is. And in truth, there may be no real distinction between God being obligated to do something and God wanting to do something, desiring to do something, but we should try to stay away from the idea that God shows grace because he has to. That leads to many problems, including presumption in our sin. 
So what do we do? What do we say about God's grace? Some of you may balk at the idea of such a foundational question. But if you desire to rejoice, right? That, that's the whole point of this, this Sunday in particular, to bring us to a crescendo of rejoicing in God's grace. If you want to rejoice in the Lord, we must understand what it is that we are actually celebrating. Without understanding His grace and knowing what it is and why it is that He is gracious, to celebrate God's grace, which is one of the most foundational ways to celebrate Him, that would be like celebrating the 4th of July without knowing what the United States is or what freedom is. It doesn't make any sense. Why are you celebrating? But what do we say? We could say in summary fashion that Jesus Christ is the grace of God. He is called the grace of God in Titus 2.11. And while that's probably most correct, uh, it would take a long excursus on Trinitarian theology to explain what it means, what that means that Jesus is the grace of God and how that can be the case. In short, the Son, Jesus Christ, is the grace of God in the same way that He is the wisdom and power of God. But let's rephrase the question a bit, shall we? What does it mean when we say that God is a gracious God. That's different than asking merely what is grace, right? Because we, we have some experience of grace in our relationships. Uh, we have, I'll use the example with knowledge. So we know, hopefully you know, that God is omniscient. He knows all things. So we have some experience of knowledge. We know what knowledge is. We know what it means to know something or maybe we do, we think we know what it means to know something, and then we just extrapolate that to God's knowledge. We just say, uh, knowledge times infinity, and that's what God has. Um, We we know what it means to have some degree of power, some ability to do something, and so we just take that, okay, that's what power is, that's what ability is, and we just multiply it times infinity, and we're like, well, that's what God is. So we have some experience relationally with grace, and so we say just multiply that times infinity, and that's what God has. That's anthropological theology. It's just going from your experience to understand what, who God is. And while that may be helpful in some ways, that's not, the, not generally the approach the Bible takes. So what does it mean for us to say that God is gracious? Here's my attempt to answer the question. And in answering questions like this, you must realize that we are right up against the very mystery of God. So any attempt to answer questions like this will be inadequate, and it will only create more questions. I think we're given a framework to understand the answer to this question in Psalm 145. That the Lord God is a gracious God is to say that the Lord God delights to bless even his enemies more than he delights in cursing them. Say that again. To say that the Lord God is a gracious God is to say that the Lord God delights to bless even his enemies more than he delights in cursing them. God's glorious grace is this, his preference to show kindness, mercy, steadfast love, etc., Instead of wrath, judgment, and condemnation. This is from verses 8 and 9. 
The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And His mercy is over all that He has made. There's intentional disproportionality in that statement. You will not begin to understand the God who is there until you begin to see that intentional disproportionality. In short, here's a way to think of it. The Lord has deep, deep wells of reserves of mercy and steadfast love, patience and kindness, and whatever else you'd want to supply there. And He has an intentionally lack, a small, short supply of wrath and anger. He's not trigger happy with condemnation. The Lord will destroy the wicked, verse 20, second half, and we'll get to that. But he much more delights in blessing them than he does in cursing. His grace, then, is his acting upon his preference. He acts upon his preference within his own character and motivations towards all that he has made. Do you realize that all... Everything is under God's grace and mercy. When you're reading Romans 1, there's a temptation, I think, to think that we are under wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. But that, something being revealed doesn't mean that you're under it. The dispensation, if you will, that we are under is grace. His mercy is over all that He has made. There's not a kind of dualism out there where there's spaces and places in the world where there's where God's wrath is and there's certain people and they're, they're under wrath. They're under condemnation and will be unless they repent and turn to Christ. But His mercy, His patience, His kindness is the thing that rules right now. Even in the curse. Do you understand this? That it is mercy for God to curse the world like he did in, in Genesis 3? That he doesn't just let it run after sin perpetually? That he doesn't leave heaven silent to the opposition of man? That he intentionally presses down hard on the children of men that they might repent? That's mercy. That's kindness. That's patience. Even in the mystery of the problem of sin and evil itself, Paul says this in Romans 11, for God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. So why does God show grace? With something so great, something such, such an amazing disposition within God, let's, let's ask this. Why does He show it? It's one thing to say that He's gracious. It's another thing to say that He actually acts upon it. Why does He do that? I think it should be obvious, but we still need to ask it. The, the problem is, I think that we forget why He acts on His gracious disposition. This is where Psalm 145 is particularly helpful. Consider this. Why is the psalmist, if it's David, think of it as David, uh, why is David writing this psalm at all? Because he's happy about God's grace. He is delighting 
and who God is and his ability to show grace. That is why we have the majority of the Psalms. Grace from God leads to blessing from His people. Verses 1-2, through I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day, I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. God acting in grace enables His people to respond that way. Otherwise, there would be no people extolling His greatness. Verse 3, God's grace from God leads to an excitement and an eagerness to know and relish the greatness of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And all His greatness, and His greatness is unsearchable. There's this tantalizing aspect to God's greatness when He shows grace to you to invite you in to where His majesty and His almighty character and nature doesn't terrify you. Verse 4, God's gracious disposition and Him acting on it. Remember what it is we're talking about. We're, We're asking, why does God act on His gracious disposition? It leads to a desire to commend all that He has done. From one generation to another. So it is not just that we are shown grace in order to uh, escape wrath or something. But look, one generation shall commend your works to one another. He's saying that as God shows grace, as God works like He does, as He goes on to explain the way that He works, that will generate in the heart of those that have received God's grace a desire to commend Him and His works to other people. The motivation for speaking about God to proclaim His excellencies, to do any kind of evangelism, is the glory of God. But you have to have encountered that glory in a way that doesn't go badly for you. God shows grace in order for you to proclaim His excellencies. In verses 5-7, through the word rejoice isn't used specifically, but everything is rejoicing. And delighting in the greatness of God and in His works. On your glorious splendor. On the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wondrous works I will meditate. If He's under wrath. If God's holiness is just a brute force and it's a huge problem for Him. And God hasn't acted and hasn't chosen to act in grace. And to delight in blessing rather than cursing. You can't do that. All of God is nothing but terror for you if He doesn't show grace. They. Who is they? Look, look at the beginning of verse 6. They. Who's the they? I think it could be just a reference to anyone. The, the, maybe the marvelous works. The works themselves, which would mean anything that God does, anything that He has created, anyone, anywhere. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. He's eager to do this. He wants to because God has shown him grace and invited him into a posture and a frame of mind and equipped him to see what God has done so that he proclaims it and delights in it. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. These aren't somber, dreary people. They are extolling, they are exulting in the greatness of God. This is why God shows grace. And He doesn't change the subject in verses 8 and 9. 
This is the blazing celebration, if you will, of God's mighty works. This is what can be seen as we perceive the way that God works, as we look into creation, as we look at His dealings with man, and we look at His history of redemption. Verses 8 and 9 are painfully, joyfully, clearly obvious. You can just read the history of Israel, and even if this were never stated, you would come away saying this. Just look at the cross and you can say this. The Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And His mercy is over all that He has made. In verses 10 through 13, we see that the character of God, that He is gracious and merciful, leads to all those who see it to proclaim it. And not just to proclaim it, but to do so with joy and an overabundance of zeal to make it known. Look at it. All your works shall give thanks to you, O God. A person who is under wrath doesn't give thanks. I guarantee it. Grace leads to thanksgiving. And all your saints, all your holy ones, all those that you have set apart for your own purposes, they shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. This is God's objective in showing grace to people to create a kind of group of people that do this. The eyes of all look to you. I'm sorry, verse verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. God's rule and reign over the universe is a problem if He doesn't show grace. Because we're all guilty. You understand that? That His kingdom rules and reigns and extends to all the farthest reaches of the universe is not good news for you unless there is grace. Verses 13, the second half through verse 20, we won't read through that all again, but it's to celebrate the ways that it can be plainly seen, clearly seen through history and through creation that the Lord is gracious and merciful. I'll just mention a few. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Do you know the Lord feeds the animals every day? He causes the grass to grow. He makes the sun rise. He makes the rain fall. In Vern uh, Poitras' book on interpreting Eden, he says that maybe the reason that we can chart physical laws and predict them with such precision is just a result of God's faithfulness to do the same thing every single time. And his faithfulness to cause photosynthesis to happen and to cause gravity to work the way it does. And he's doing it over and over and over and over in perfect precision so that the world doesn't run off the rails. And we see that and we say it's because of these laws, but we don't know why the laws are there. It's God's faithfulness. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. He he condescends to address us in our need. He's not 
sitting on a, a citadel up there in heaven, in the celestial city, just waiting for us to figure it out and to make our way home somehow. He hears the cry of those who fear him. He fulfills their desire, their longing. He's kind. And at the end of verse 20, we get the only clear indication in this psalm that the Lord will judge the wicked. And we'll consider that in a moment. For now, just consider how intentionally, like I've already said, intentionally disproportional this psalm is. He's excited and exuberant over God's grace and mercy and kindness. And he does say, the Lord will judge the wicked. He will destroy all the wicked. But just on the face of it, this seems a little imbalanced with what we know about God and what we know about what his wrath will be. But all of this is revisited as as we've talked through this psalm in order to make it clear why the Lord himself shows mercy and kindness and provision. Why it is that he acts upon his gracious disposition He acts in this way in order to show, to demonstrate, to prove beyond all doubt just how gracious He is. That's why you exist and it's why the universe exists. Ephesians 1 says that He works all things out to the praise of His glory. And then He says He works all things out to the praise of His glorious grace. And then He says to the praise of His glory. Again, He equates the glory of God with the showing or the proving or the demonstration of God's grace. It's why the Son was incarnated. Think of this. God could have demonstrated His wrath just fine by condemning and punishing Satan and his in hell forever. So why did the Son need to be incarnated? Why create a species in the image of God so that He could prove how gracious He is? He creates man in His image with an aim to the incarnation and an aim to the cross so that He could demonstrate His unending grace. And there's a point of application right here for you. For all of us, dear Christian, dear brother and sister in Christ, you and I just have no idea yet just how kind he is. You can't fathom it. You have no idea just how good he really is. Understand, He has chosen to prove not only His graciousness and mercy, but also His justice and righteousness, which is to say that He's chosen to demonstrate all of His holiness by showing grace to you in Christ. That's how He's decided to prove it to everyone, by showing grace to you. And not just showing you grace in some ethereal sense, but blessing you in Christ with every spiritual blessing forever. Do you understand just how kind He is? So why is it difficult to celebrate the grace of God? Seems an odd question to ask. This is such an amazing thing. It's amazing, I hope. I hope I've done a halfway decent job of explaining to you the mystery and glory of God's grace and how it's not just a simple little thing that we throw around 
but yet it is difficult to celebrate. It needs to be asked. Number one, I think it's difficult to celebrate the grace of God because we think we're awesome. Sometimes I make the mistake of listening to Christian radio. Christian radio, because radio stations can't get saved. People get saved. So it's Christian radio. And they actually closed a segment by saying this. Remember that you are awesome and we love you. We so want to believe, brothers and sisters, that we are worthy of love. That we are worthy of grace in some sense. But don't you see that merit and the belief that you have merit or that you deserve grace in some sense invalidates grace? You're no longer receiving grace if you're getting what you deserve. This is what it can sound like. Of course God wants to bless me rather than curse me. Haven't you met me? Look at how beautiful and glorious I am. He made me in His image. And it's funny, it's ridiculous, but consider the way that you expect to be treated by others. Isn't it the case that the way that you expect to be treated by others is a reflection of your real expectations of the Lord? We expect to be treated by others like we're awesome. How dare you treat me that way? Understand this, the more awesome and the more wonderful and the more good you think you are, and the more awesome and wonderful and good you think other people are in general, the more difficult it will be for you to rejoice in God's grace. It will be basically impossible. Which is the same thing to say that it will be difficult for you to have any real joy at all. Grace and delighting in God's grace is the root, fountain, of all Christian joy. So if you think you deserve it in some sense, you're invalidating grace, so there's no path to joy for you at all. The way up is down. That's why we love the song, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. That anything we have, anything we do, we were but unworthy servants. Paul says to the Corinthian church, what do you have that you didn't receive? Every good gift comes from him, James says. Thinking that you're awesome and deserving greats actually cuts you off from grace. It's like cutting the limb off that you're sitting on. And it never works anyway. In order to rejoice with the fullness of joy that the Lord intended, we must first come to the end of ourselves. This is demonstrated very clearly in the revival that took place under the ministry of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8, verses 9-12, through 12, you can read that in your own time, and also in the repentance or the reformation of King Josiah. He humbled himself, tore his clothes, and put on sackcloth and ashes. And the Lord said, because you responded that way to my word, I'll delay judgment so that it won't be in your day. It won't be in your time. Number two, the second reason I think that we struggle or why we can struggle to celebrate God's grace, to draw from that deep well of joy that can be ours, is because we think we're righteous. This is a a related problem. Maybe we know that compared to God and His angels, we're we're really not awesome at all. We're we're kind of uh, in the muck of humanity, if you will. 
But even so, we can have a view of ourselves that we are the righteous in the sense that we have gotten our act together. Maybe we think that we have brought ourselves into this faith. It might sound something like this in your heart. Yeah, sure, God has shown me grace, but I've made the most of the grace that God has given to me. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's what happens when you think you're the righteous, you're the good guys. You think you sit on a pedestal, a plateau of holiness closer to God, and everyone else is just down in the valley away from the Lord. That's the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. John Foreman, a singer and songwriter, writing a song on Matthew, uh, not Matthew, Micah 7, states it this way, both of our hands are equally skilled at doing evil, equally skilled at bribing the judges, equally skilled at perverting justice, both of our hands, both of our hands. Or do you think you're the exception? thinking that you're the exception, makes it impossible to rejoice in God's grace. Don't you understand this? You can't have real Christian joy if you think you're the exception. In fact, it will make God's grace offensive to you. If you think that you're the exception and that you don't really need God's grace, then you'll be just like Jonah, being angry at a lavish display of God's grace. And worst of all, it cuts you off from grace because it says, I don't really need it. I don't really need grace. If God's going to save anyone, certainly He'd save me. Number three. Third reason is it's difficult to celebrate or rejoice in God's grace. Because in order to rejoice in God's grace, we have to concede that we have nothing. Grace, as that broad category even behind things like kindness and mercy, makes us realize a few things. If grace is what it is, defined biblically, then to be a candidate for grace and all of God's other benevolent actions, you must have no leg to stand on. You have to be in a position where you have no argument. You have no claims to anything good from God in order to be an appropriate recipient of grace. Mark Dever, a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, commenting on Romans 9, said it this way, You know that strict fairness is hell even for the Christian. If we want fairness, if we demand fairness, we know that we have sinned against a holy God. If we demand precisely what we deserve, no more, no less, just what I deserve, well, then we are essentially demanding hell. To really embrace God's grace at a fundamental level in your heart in a way that will yield joy and be for you a well of stability in the chaos in your life, you must see that God holds all the cards. And you have nothing. 
And that, frankly, rubs us the wrong way. We don't want to be in the position where we have nothing. And this is why it must be said at the end of verse 20, but all the wicked he will destroy. Well, that doesn't sound very gracious, does it? Understand, in this context, the wicked, in the most fundamental sense, are those who insist that they don't need grace. That's who the wicked are. They can look as respectable and clean and upstanding on the outside as you can ever get, but they insist in their heart of hearts that they don't really need God's grace, that they bring something to the table. So if you persist in your rejection of God's grace, if you say, I don't need it, then you don't get it. So the wicked will be destroyed. Doesn't matter how good or upstanding you are, there's no other grace available for you. This is why John says it this way, if we say we have no sin, if we say we don't need grace, if we say we're not a sinner in need of God's forgiveness, then we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, if we say, yes, I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm underneath condemnation, I have no leg to stand on, you hold all the cards, God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Dear friend, if you are outside of Christ, understand that God has desired, designed, and determined to show grace to you in the free offer of His forgiveness in Jesus Christ. In order for that to appear to be good news, you have to understand that you have no leg to stand on. You have nothing to bring to the table. Trust in Him. Humble yourselves. Someone very dear to me recently was, uh, said this, maybe there's no grace left for me. But don't you understand the only qualification for receiving grace is to believe that you actually need it. And that God's grace is your only hope. Just as the tax collector cries out, he doesn't even look up to heaven, but beats upon his chest and says, be merciful, be propitious to me, be gracious to me, a sinner. That's all I've got. All I can do is cry out that the Lord would show grace to me. I don't have it figured out. He does, and that's a problem. Show grace to me. And right now, friend, if you're outside of Christ, He is working in your heart to convince you, right now, as you hear me speak, that you need His grace and that His grace is your only hope. So don't resist Him this morning. The next reason I think it's hard for us to rejoice in God's grace is because we're fascinated by other things so easily. This is actually, I think, one of the most common reasons that we will not rejoice in God's grace. It's astounding that as a human, where our only hope is that God would show grace, 
and we're in constant dire need of His grace, that we would be so drawn up and excited by so many other things to the exclusion of fascination and delight and excitement in God's grace. This is why the enemy uses things that are not sinful to derail your Christian walk and to rob you of all joy. Because if you're fascinated by other things more than you're fascinated by the grace of God, you won't have joy. You're trying to find your joy in whatever else. Fill in the blank. It could be something very good or something benign, something fun. This is why Jesus warns us in Mark 4. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. So they hear the good news, the message of God's grace. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. What are you fascinated by? Is it the grace of God? Young people? Parents? Husbands? Wives? What are you fascinated by? What are you excited about? Is it that God has shown grace and made grace available and the offer of His grace still stands? The door to the ark is not yet closed? Is that what fascinates you and excites you? The world needs thousands and thousands, yea, even millions of more people who are more fascinated by God's grace than anything else that this world has to offer. Vanity Fair is ruining the church. But now let's discuss how we can celebrate. Reasons to celebrate God's grace. We are commanded to do so. Number one, we are commanded to celebrate God's grace. Rejoice is actually one of the most repeated commands in Scripture. And if you uh, compare that with other commands that boil down to the same things, it's arguable that it is the most repeated command to rejoice in the Lord. How are those uh, generic commands to rejoice in the Lord connected to His grace? Understand that without God's preference to bless instead of curse, there would be no reason to rejoice. Ever. So God commands us to rejoice because He has shown grace. And He's enabled us by showing grace in His Son that we would have something to rejoice about. So rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. You must. But understand this. The gospel, this is the second reason to rejoice in God's grace. The gospel is of grace from start to finish. Paul says it this way in Acts 20. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel is the good news of God's grace. That he has shown his grace. That's what the message is about. There's good news because God has acted this way. He has chosen out of no obligation in himself to set his affection and gracious disposition on sinners like you and me. But not just the gospel in general. All the way back before the ages began, 2 Timothy 
1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And not just before the ages began, or the Gospel in general, also when it comes into our lives, when we become new. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6 Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And not just our salvation and new birth, but also our hope, our justification. Titus 3, 7, we are justified by his grace in order that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And not only these grand ideas of our justification, new birth, and our final hope, but even every day, as we read last week in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not idea, but it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Third reason to rejoice, reasons that we can rejoice in God's grace is this, you were created to do so. If you ever have that inner longing and you're not really sure what can meet it, if there's this level of frustration with your life and the way that you've patterned your life and the way you've set it up and the way that you're chasing things, that may be the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you are not pursuing, you're not making your life about the very thing that God has designed you to make your life about. It is God's grace that you would feel the futility and emptiness of everything else that you're chasing. The invitation is not just to buckle down and think differently and get back to the way that we're doing things and and be more cheerful about it, it's to make your life about delighting in the grace of God. And that does map to real change and altering of your priorities. And I can't do that for you. It must be the Holy Spirit working it out. What things should truly matter to you? What should you be spending your time, your money, your resources on? I can't answer those for you, but you must. You were created to delight, to know, to see, to celebrate, to extol the grace of God. Just read Ephesians 1 as homework to prove that. Further, the cross proves the grace of God. When we look at the cross, what does it prove? For sure, it proves God's wrath. God takes sin seriously. He will either vindicate Himself in the case of every sin that's ever been committed, either on the cross or in hell. But the main thing it demonstrates, brothers and sisters, is God's grace. Romans 5, 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love. That, that is grace happening. God demonstrates His love, and that is the operation of His grace. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as I mentioned earlier, this is another reason we can celebrate the grace of God is because the fact that the world has not ended yet proves that God's grace and His 
patience is still open to anyone who would repent. 2 Peter 3.15 And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The reason He is lingering and waiting is so that more people would be saved. and So that you would be more sanctified if you're in Him. And so that you, your friend, would come to terms with the fact that you may not even be in Christ. The pause button is being held down by the mercy of God. All that it will take is a release and judgment day will be here. It's all mercy. His mercy is over all that He has made. The great and awesome day of the Lord has not happened yet. There's still time. Repent and find grace. And lastly, it is fitting to connect this to the Lord's Supper. Christ's body and blood has been given. Is the final reason that we're given a, a way to celebrate God's grace. This is what we celebrate when we take of the Lord's Supper. Even though we had volunteers putting this supper together, as it were, this memorial portion, what it symbolizes is that God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He has set the table. He is the one who has crushed the sun in our place that gives us the true spiritual wine that we need from His blood, the true bread from His body that we need. You know, in the Old Testament, as they're describing all the different sacrifices that God is giving the commands to Moses, he, he gives the description exactly how it's supposed to be cut up and prepared, and he says, this is a memorial offering. This is a sin offering. This is a guilt offering. It goes on and on and on, and some of you probably get bored with those sections of Scripture. That's fine. But when we come to the Lord's sacrifice of himself, he says, this is my body. Not like any of the other sacrifices, God makes the sacrifice. He's the one that provides the lamb. And so, as we already looked this morning, we need to consider these passages from 1 Corinthians. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. If anyone who eats and drinks, or if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This table represents the availability, the frequent, persistent availability, and our dependency on God's grace. So understand whether or not you take this cup and bread is in many ways a matter between you and the Lord. But unless you discern the body and blood and understand that this is a representation of the broken body of Jesus and His shed blood for you in your place, then you ought not take it. We practice open communion at our church, so if you're a baptized believer, 
even from another church of like faith, you can take this supper, but examine yourselves. You don't want to trample on the grace of God through presumption. And so I want to give a few instructions as we close. After I pray, we'll essentially form a line around the outside and then just return to your seats through the middle. And we'll sing a few songs after we take the Lord's Supper. Return to your seats with the elements and we'll take them together. And then after we're done, uh, I will dismiss those who are helping with lunch and the rest of us will stay in here and sing. And then after that, after we're done singing, if you will make your way through the side door instead of the two double doors uh, to begin the process of going through the line, that would help us avoid any traffic jams. So let me pray, and we'll begin. Father, thank you for your grace, your grace abounding to sinners like us. Help us rejoice all the more in your glorious grace, and help us Remove from our hearts the hindrances that make it very difficult to rejoice in your grace. I ask that as we receive this bread and this fruit of the vine, that we would discern the body of Jesus Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory.
the blood of Christ shed for you. The body of Christ broken for you. You have made this available for us. We know that you desire us to be unified as a body as we show the world what you have done in your Son, preparing this table for all who will come. I pray for those that may not know you this morning that they would understand that the table is open, the offer of grace still stands. As we sing these next songs, may you sanctify our hearts together. Thank you for all those who have provided food. I pray that we would receive it with glad and generous hearts. And may our fellowship be a continuation of our worship. And we understand the connectedness between the meal that we have just taken in a spiritual sense and the real meal for nourishment of our body and the fellowship that we have afterwards as united, as one sacred celebration. In Jesus' name, amen.